Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Kate. I'm Bryn, and we are very excited to have Fran Moore joining us here today. Fran Moore is a retired Central Intelligence Agency senior officer with 32 years of leadership and intelligence analysis experience. She served in a number of senior positions at the agency, including most recently as Director for Intelligence from 2010 to 2014. Fran now runs FPN Consulting, LLC, and serves on the board of the Threat Deterrence Capital, guiding businesses that support U.S. intelligence, security, and law enforcement needs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fran. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you for having me. One of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is this concept of inflection points or times when you had to pivot in your personal life or professional life. What are some inflection points in your life that have gotten you to where you are now? Um, I've had several inflection points, and, and I will say that just to understand a little bit about um, my career and background, um, I started at CIA right out of college, so um, I hadn't really had what I'd call a real job before that, and I entered on duty as an analyst, which was my dream. I was an international relations and political science major, and uh, the, the idea that I was going to get to use that knowledge to actually support U.S. national security policymaking was, I don't know, catnip. I was really excited. And I was an analyst on Asia for about 12 years. Um, but in the 1980s, you still could not get ahead as a woman in some areas of the, of the U.S. government. And CIA was one of those places um, where I was told that if I wanted to manage analysis, if I wanted to move from doing it to actually leading it, um, it would be difficult for me to do that if I chose to get married and have a family. And so um, as an analyst, I got married and started trying to have children and while my performance appraisals suggested I should have that opportunity to lead, um, I, I wasn't given it. And I was simply not given it because, as I was told, and at that time you could tell women this, um, we think your loyalties will be divided between home and family and work, and we'd rather have somebody who we know can give it 100%, and that you know translated into white men. So um, I, at the 12-year point in my career, um, had two small children who needed me um, at home, and I was working as a senior analyst at that point on um, a crisis. So the agency had no problem having me working 12, 13, 14-hour shifts as an analyst, but would not allow me the opportunity to lead because my loyalties were going to be divided. You can imagine that I was getting frustrated by that point. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the frustration really with my lack of ability to get ahead in ways that I wanted to, that career advancement that I was looking for. And the fact that one of my children, my son, was getting in trouble at school and, and I was not really able to be there at dinner time or after school, you know, forget about after school, but at least dinner time. We were still awake um, to work with him. I said, I have to find something else that's different. It was a true inflection point. And then I said, if, if I'm going to do something different, um, the agency has a lot of occupations that are not analysis. Is there something else I could do in the agency? So I began to look around, and just at that point, um, the agency was, was looking to bring data and information to the decisions that it made about its workforce. How do we attract, retain, motivate, develop the best and brightest, because CIA employs people for 20 and 30 year careers. So you've got to really make sure people continue to learn and produce and be productive um, and fulfilled. So um, I had the opportunity to bring my analytic skill set to that endeavor. And I moved from the an analytic occupation to the human resources area, 
where I led a small team that did research and analysis to inform decisions across that what's called the employee life cycle, everything from recruiting people to developing them to paying them. What are the right skills we need from a strategic perspective for the agency not just to do its mission today, but to do it in five or ten years? Um, it was not considered a career-enhancing job. I had very senior people telling me it's a waste of taxpayers' money to have you go do that wow. because you're so brilliant. I was an Asia analyst. You're so brilliant on Asia. And I said, I need to do something different, and I want to give this a try. Well, when I look back on my career, and I eventually rose to lead the entire analytic directorate. So I didn't just go from analyst to manager. I made it to the top of that occupation, and there are thousands of analysts at the agency. Um, if I had not had those three years of truly understanding how organizations need to develop and, and, and um, advance their officers, I wouldn't have had the leadership skills I needed to go back and be effective. So I had my first opportunity to lead in that job, and then I realized, um, and this is something I think everyone needs to think about, um, as much as I loved what I was doing on human resources, the occupation of human resources at CIA was not just about that analytic work. It was about making sure payroll was done properly. It was about making sure that people's insurance benefits were accurate. And if I was going to advance in that occupation, I was going to need to stop doing the analysis and learn how to run payroll. And I like a lot of things in life, but being responsible for, for making sure payroll worked was not going to get me out <laughs> yeah. of bed every morning. <laughs> Analysis and informing decisions gets me out of bed every morning. And in CIA, the place where that happens every day is the analytic directorate. So I decided to go back, but I went back on my own terms. And this is why this is such an important inflection point for me. I wasn't going back to work Asia if I couldn't advance and lead. I had to go back to another part of the analytic directorate where I could actually fulfill those career aspirations. Um, and I did. Uh, and everything I learned, not just about leading people, but about what I call the science, really, of thinking about how you put a team together to maximize impact came from that experience. Um, I would not have risen to the level I rose in the organization if I hadn't had that inflection point. And it was not certainly not one driven by positive feelings. Yeah. It was, a, I have to go do something different because I, I'm not going to be able to achieve what I want to achieve where I am today. That's incredible. Uh, I really like the point that you mentioned about being a woman in the CIA where mm -hmm. they said, well, you can't have it all. And if you want to try mm -hmm. it, it's not going to work. But we still are going to demand a lot of you. But <laughs> you were able to right. raise up the ranks very well. Right. What changes did you see in the way women were treated in the CIA and the opportunities they were given over your tenure there? So even um, in that period where my office and the analytic directorate was saying, um, we, we're not going to give you a shot, you know, we're not going to tap you on the shoulder to lead, other parts of the analytic directorate were allowing women with children to lead. So it wasn't a blanket policy. But the um, analytic directorate had it even better even then. Um, the operational directorate, it was even harder for women to advance. So the women that advanced in the operational develop, uh, in the operational directorate truly had to be exceptional at what they did. Um, and over time, um, and about the same time the agency started looking at how do we have better human resource practices, it really started to take diversity um, hiring seriously. And when I say diversity hiring and development, I don't mean just to meet the legal requirements. I mean the business case for diversity, right? Bringing the best and broadest and most diverse set of 
right people to the table to problem solve. And if you think about how hard national security challenges are for the U.S., if you don't have the smartest mind, regardless of gender, race, sexual orientation, creed at the table, you're not actually going to be able to solve those hard problems. So I think that the agency began to understand that our mission in particular uniquely needed that skill set at the table. And so um, at least in the leadership ranks, there was more attention paid to the issue of making sure that more was done to level the playing field. Um, I would love to tell you that we have absolutely leveled that playing field, but um, in, in the in the whether it's gender or, or any sort of other um, differentiator, uh, hidden you cannot necessarily get at everybody's hidden assumptions. So even in this day and age, it's important to say, um, in say a performance evaluation uh, situation. The fact that that individual has two small children is not relevant to this conversation. They may have said no to the last two jobs you offered to them for that reason, but do not assume that this third opportunity is one that they're going to turn down for that reason. It's not your place to assume they can't take this job. Who knows what may, whether something's changed on the home front. Um, and, in, and it's not just about women in that scenario anymore, although I think sometimes that bias is still more detrimental to women, um, but for men, too, who may have said, hey, for family reasons, I really can't take that job. And the intelligence business is one where there's tremendous sacrifice demanded, and so it's hard to say my family needs me too much for me to actually work nights right now or to take an unaccompanied tour to Afghanistan. Uh, we expect people to be able to step up to that. Um, but if you begin to um, assume that people are going to say no to a job, you curtail opportunities for the broadest set of bright people. That's incredible. <laughs> so going back a little bit, one thing that this podcast tries to do is figure out what people's motivations were and mm -hmm. what brought them into the fields that they're in. Mm -hmm. So you noted that you went into the CIA straight out of college, but that mm -hmm. you were interested in international relations in college. What sparked your interest in studying international relations and entering the CIA in the first place? So I have to give my parents a lot of credit for just making me aware of the world. Um, my dinner table was one of six kids. Um, my my mother it was the politics junkie in the house, and um, we had spirited you know conversations about trade barriers and whether or not Japanese steel was putting the U.S. steel industry out of business in the 1970s. We watched the Democratic and national conventions every four years like it was the World Series, and sports is the other great passion in my family. So when I say <laughs> that, I'm talking about staying up. Like I was, you know, in 1968, I was seven years old when um, Robert Kennedy was assassinated at the Democratic National Convention, and my mother had it on live. And so um, we were raised to think. Um, and, and I'd say then more in domestic political terms than in international terms, but to understand. I have four older brothers and sisters who, and two brothers who were eligible to be drafted during the Vietnam War. So even though I was, a, you know, I was little, but I've always been a vicarious learner, I was watching my siblings go through the 60s and the turmoil of the 60s. It was social issues, right? It was civil rights. It was a Vietnam War. It was you know, Nixon opening China in the early 70s. It was a big era. But the galvanizing, my inflection point for why I do what I do was Watergate. I was, I guess, 13, 12, 13, 13, I guess, when the Watergate hearings were underway. And um, I was glued to it, again, like it was the World Series. Um, I heard Barbara Jordan, who was an African-American congresswoman from Texas, give an address there where she really questioned whether or not the president of the United States had um, uh, you know, violated and betrayed America's trust. 
And I was just completely fixated on it. And that was America's institutions at work. And I decided right there and then, oh, this is just too cool. I want a career in government. Um, I loved history. I loved uh, government in high school. And my high school yearbook, you know, that you have to figure out your junior year when they say, what do you want to be when you grow up, says desires a career in government. So I knew in high school I wanted it. I thought it was going to be on the domestic side, Congress, you know, congressional staff, Hill, that sort of thing. But I had an international relations professor in college that blew me away, opened my mind to um, American diplomacy. And I said, oh, this is really what I want to do. Um, so I never deviated from that. Now, I will tell you serendipity is also something that you should never sneeze at because my senior year of college and I was sticking my resume into envelopes back then with stamps, right? There was no email yeah. <laughs> and mailing it to places. I had a good friend who said, Fran, hey, I have an extra stamped envelope for State Department. Do you want it? And I said, sure. And I trusted him. Now, he to this day, he has never told me whether he did it on purpose or not, but it wasn't State Department's personnel uh, office that I was sending it to. It was the CIA personnel office that I was sending it to. Oh, whoa. And, um, one little resume and an envelope got into the CIA bureaucracy. There was a hiring freeze um, during the, this was the early, this was 1982. Um, after President Reagan came, you know, came in, he, he put in a hiring freeze. So it took me 15 months to process, but they, they sent me back their very long security form and I filled it out and stuck with it. And 15 months later, you know, I entered on duty as an analyst on Southeast Asia. Wow, so, that's a very nice yeah. kind of stumbling into something yeah, excellent. Exactly, exactly. So when people say, how would you pick? I say, not only that, only one unit in CIA was interested in interviewing me. I mean, typically somebody sends in their resume, there's three or four people that want to talk to yeah. you and you interview. I They flew me in and everything to interview with one man. And um, years later, you know, when I was like the head of analysis and he's now in his late 70s, I think. Uh, I was uh, at a dinner with him and I said, why did you hire me? I said, as an undergraduate, even back then, CIA was more likely to hire you with a master's degree. So the undergraduates were a, um, a small minority in the workforce. Why'd you hire me? And he said, you had really good writing samples. You showed me that you could think in the way you wrote. But the truth is, I just, you know, I told my boss, I think this woman can do anything she puts her mind to, and that's going to be good for us. And I said, wow. I said, so I use that now when I talk to people about when you're making decisions on hiring, do not just go by what's on paper. Because if I'm any guide, um, you know, my credentials were um, on the low side, uh, you know, as an undergraduate. No, I mean, I graduated, and I, I don't tout myself, but Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude, okay? So I was not yeah, a poor you were doing student, fine. okay? <laughs> but, um, you know, master's degree was the norm there. And one office took a chance on me, and in the end, it wasn't anything I had done in the traditional paperwork that made this man give me the job. It was my, he said, I just knew you could do what you put your mind to. And, and I said, and that is the quintessential intangible. When you're in a crisis, you need problem-solving people who can just persevere and get it done. So um, it was a, a kind of a lesson learned. I didn't expect me to be the lesson learned in that conversation, but uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind when you're interviewing people. Wow. All right. Switching pace a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, we were both really interested in going through our research to see, obviously, the world has changed very dramatically since you first started at the agency and with the advent of the Internet and all the new technology that we have. How has that changed the way that the CIA does business and how do they sort 
kind of through all the noise that exists now to find the truly relevant information. So it's interesting because in some ways the job has changed remarkably, and in other ways some of the core fundamentals really haven't changed. And what, what do I mean by that? Um, when I started in 1983, there was no electronic dissemination of information, right? So literally all of the secrets that were being collected came in on printouts that came in through, you know, cables to a central place in the agency. And every morning, you know, somebody was assigned morning duty and the morning duty was to physically go up to this operation center and get the stack of traffic that was relevant to our part of the world, bring it downstairs sort it by, you know, in our case, Southeast Asia has lots of countries, so sort it by country and hand each stack to the manager of those countries. And then it made its way through all the analysts. I mean, it's, it's like literally, you know, digging with a spoon, right? Um, and then early on, electronic dissemination of information came into being. So the volume challenge has been with us for nearly 30 years. Um, and the agency was out ahead in some respects for um, technologies that will allow us to sort through that data and bin it so that the most important information rose to the top so analysts wouldn't have to spend as much time searching for it and have more time to think and to write you know, the analysis. Um, but the deluge of volume has always outpaced our brilliance at those um, concept maps to pull the most inf information forward. So it is something that we've had to grapple with. Um, the other thing is the tradecraft, right? It's a critical thinking piece first. There's so much information out there. And if you're an expert on Russia or China, you know enormous amounts. Sifting all of that big head, right, that big brain into the tiny thimbleful of the most important things you want to put in front of a busy policymaker that's relevant and useful to the decisions they're making is tough. And the sifter for that is understanding the critical thinking, intelligence questions you have to ask. What is it the U.S. is trying to achieve in its foreign policy? say, vis-a-vis -vis China. What is the information that is the most relevant that we have either clandestinely or openly available, or even because we're China experts, that we can synthesize to help inform that decision as they're making it? So it's, you know, say we're going to take a new tack with China on trade. What are the trade balances? Where are the areas where the Chinese are pushing the hardest to grow trade? Where are the areas where they may be vulnerable to a pushback from us without it um, spurring unintended consequences like a trade war that would hurt everybody. So you have to ask those questions and then what information do we have that can help illuminate that so that policymakers can either mitigate the risk and any of you that are thinking about business um, uh, internships, right? It's all about mitigating risk and exploiting opportunity. Well, what intelligence analysis does is that, you know, uh, trade off for, for policy rather than for the bottom line. So since this podcast is student-focused, we always like mm -hmm. to ask speakers what their personal definition of success is and what advice they might be able to give to students when defining success for themselves. Do you have any words of wisdom for us? Um, yes, and they're they're very myopic because they're really my, my experience. <laughs> but um, I was blessed and truly, truly blessed because um, as, at, the, at the ripe old age now of 56, as I look at what does it take to be happy in life, to have decided in high school I wanted a career in government, to actually get one, and then have a career that I loved. Now, was I frustrated when I couldn't get ahead in those early jobs? Did I have to do some soul searching? Yes. But I never felt like the work I was doing wasn't important. I was just frustrated at, at a personal level, but I was able to overcome it, right? I hit that obstacle. And frankly, because of that obstacle, I got to a better place. So um, I, I think the fact that 
you know, if you can find something that you love to do that gets you out of bed every morning and makes you enough money to meet your personal financial objectives, which mine were at least to make my mortgage payment and be able to retire and take care of myself when I grew old, fairly modest. And in the government, you're not going to get rich. Okay. So, um, but those were the goals, but to love what I did every day, um, to give up time with my children, to give up time with my family. And when I say time with my children and family, I'm not talking about the eight hour day. When I was the head of analysis, I worked 14, 15, 16 hour days. I worked weekends. Oh, wow. The Arab Spring started when I was the head of analysis. Um, for three months, I worked every day. Um, and I worked long hours every day because the policy process happens nights and weekends. I can tell you, I, I think of holidays by where was I? Oh, that's the year Buddha was assassinated. Oh, that's the year that the, you know, the, the coast tragedy happened. Oh, that's the year Mumbai got shot up. I mean, I, I spent a lot of holidays at work because crises happen on Christmas and New Year's and Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. We really appreciate you being with, here well, with us, Fran. Thank you for having me. And um, this is a great institution. You guys are very lucky to be here. I'm very impressed with CMC. Thank you very much for that. And for all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>